0: Mark Tanner's drive, keen understanding of the anatomy of a trial, and his humility are amongst the characteristics that make him one of the best trial lawyers in the profession. Mark's results, as well as the awards and accolades he receives from his peers, make this fact quite obvious. Mark has the rare recognition of being a fellow in both the American College of Trial Lawyers and the International Academy of Trial Lawyers. During our conversation, Mark discusses the motivation that he continues to draw upon from watching his family struggle as a child when his father was laid off from a job. Mark shares that from that point forward, he never wanted anybody to control his destiny. Mark's journey as a lawyer did not start as planned when he lost his first four jury trials. During a poker game, one of Mark's childhood buddies said to him, If I do not hate the defendant doctor, I will not find for your client. Mark took that lesson and applied it. Mark describes himself as a guy who will never stab his opponent in the back, but he will kick them in the teeth. Enjoy this episode of Iron Advocate as we continue to explore how lawyers can kill it in the practice of law without it killing us.
1: You're listening to Iron Advocate. The podcast dedicated to you, the trial attorney. Sage, visionary, warrior, unfiltered, no holds barred, iron advocate. Join Bob Levant, Jeff Riebel, and today's top legal minds on a journey to discover how to kill it in the law without it killing you. Because being the best advocate for others begins with being the best advocate for yourself.
0: Hey, Mark. Thanks for being here. Hi, Bob. Good morning. Well, we all know from that intro, you've had plenty of wins. Um, Biggest failures in your career? Uh, Well, I uh, managed to get them
2: out of the way quickly and early. Uh, I think that the first four cases in a row that I tried uh, were all defeats. And uh, that really called, made me question what I was doing. Um, Was this the right career for me? And, uh, you know, How can I avoid this kind of string of failures, which was certainly not what I anticipated when I I went to law school and embarked on a career as a trial lawyer?
3: Mark, what did you learn or let's say the top three lessons you learned from losing your first four
2: jury trials in a row? Uh, The first thing I learned, I think, is, well, there were a few things, but the the first was that to, to be a trial lawyer, I think it takes a lot of grit. Um, You have to be prepared to let the punches roll off you. You have to be ready to respond to, you know, major blows in such a way that it's not, um, you know, something that's going to make you go curl up in the corner, but that you're going to come out swinging harder. Um, And uh, I I also learned to – steal a few techniques from my opponents along the way and sort of improve my skills. But for, for the most part, I think the biggest lesson was this was the, the first time in my life that I really applied myself to something and didn't achieve the the kind of success that I expected at the
0: pace at which I expected it. And uh, I had to adjust to that. Mark, are you able to pinpoint specific things that, quote, you felt like you did wrong or when you look back that that you know you attribute those losses to that that you do differently now. I mean, there's a few things. First, when I look back,
2: I realized that uh, when I was in my early 20s, I think I was 24 years old when I started trying these cases. The reason I was getting these cases to try was because nobody else wanted them, and uh, you know they, they were clearly problematic. But when you approach a case, or at least when I approach a case, I, I don't care what the the facts are or what it looks like. When, once we start, I think I'm going to win. And I think I'm going to win all the way through until the jury tells me otherwise. Um, But one of the things I learned was that at least I had to adapt my personality a little bit to the persona that I am in the courtroom. And what I mean by that is I generally, um, I like people and I like to get along with people and I generally do. But in a trial, I had to become considerably more confrontational one of the things that that changed about the way in which I try cases is that most of the time, probably 90% of the time. Now my first witness is my opponent, the defendant. Um, And and I get that major confrontation teed up and out of the way first. Um, And that was a change because initially I thought I was going to build my case, you know, slowly brick by brick, allow the jury to identify with me, with my client, my experts. Um, But, but, now I don't. I come out swinging,
0: swinging hard. I mean, it's an oversimplification, but you were too you you were too nice, is what you're saying.
2: Uh, I don't know if I was too nice. I certainly wasn't trying to be, but uh, I, I just you know didn't come out looking to punch him in the mouth as hard as I can, which is, is something that has really changed. Um, now you know, I think I'll do whatever I can within the confines of, of course, the ethical and professional guidelines to win and swing hard and then do it with dignity. But, uh, you know, yeah, I'm I'm not a guy that'll stab me in the back, but I am going to kick you in the teeth. So, Mark, the the
3: change that you're talking about, the kind of transformation, was this a, a result of a process where you sat down after four straight losses and, and examined your whole approach or how did that come about? I mean, the reason I'm asking this is folks listening to this, who want to be the next Mark Tanner or the next Bob Levant, they want to go inside your head and understand what your, what, what the inner approach was for you after four straight losses. The,
2: the inner approach came to me, not from another lawyer or a mentor or anything like that, but it, uh, came to me in a poker game with my buddies uh i'm still friends with the same guys i went to grade school with from third grade i'm the only lawyer and most of them you know didn't go to school beyond high school and were very tight and in some ways they often represent my jury pool so we were sitting around drinking beer and uh playing cards and they they always like to hear what i'm doing what's your next case and i started telling them about the next case and one of the guys midway into my description says, hold on a sec. And he refers, it was a medical malpractice case. He says, tell me why I'm going to hate this doctor. If I'm not going to hate the doctor, you lose just like that. And and it was very confrontational. I thought about it. Jeez. I said, you know, I'm taking a long time to get to that point. (laughs) And and then I had changed my approach right then and there. And now, you know, within the first three lines, I want, someone to sit up and take notice as to why that person who's sitting in the defendant's chair is sitting there. I want them to understand immediately from my opening to the point where I call them and put them in the box, exactly what got them there. What did they do wrong? And and that was, uh, that was kind of an epiphany of sorts
0: and it seemed to work. But you know, Mark, you, so I've seen you in the courtroom and in order to get the results you've gotten, doing what you're describing you have to embody it right um you know you have to embody what you're delivering to a jury so talk to us about what it's like to have to channel that you know like your buddy said like i gotta hate the doc to 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 return the kind of verdicts that that you're getting the jury's got to be fired up and hate the doc how you know tiring invigorating all of it exhausting is it to embody that message and how do you do it um, I, I, think I do it by creating, uh,
2: sort of a contrast between me and my opponent. Um, I realize that, you know, when I put someone in that witness stand and they're the first witness that I call, they are far more uncomfortable in that setting than I am. And if I remain controlled and matter of fact, and I utilize the ammunition that I have, which is years of discovery leading up to this moment depositions, interrogatories, documents. I know exactly where I'm going and the person in the witness stand doesn't. And that makes them uncomfortable. And typically when people are uncomfortable, when they're nervous, when they're scared, they can often react badly. And and I wait until that moment when either they say something that I know is not credible because I'm going to show that either from some other document or deposition or they say something that I can tell Makes everybody sit back in the courtroom before you switch from that sort of calm, matter-of-fact demeanor to the, I guess, the righteous indignation um, that that I think sort of accomplishes that visceral shift in, in the jury from, all right, we're not sure, we're on an even keel, we're we're listening to both sides. To geez, I really don't like that person.
3: So, Mark, I want to go back to the the four losses because it just seems like such a. A good teaching point for younger lawyers yeah. after you lost four straight. Did you have any kind of existential doubt about your professional choice, your
2: ability as a lawyer? And how did you work your way through that? Yeah, I mean, I, I went home and told my wife I want to be a grade school gym teacher and play dodgeball every day because this
0: isn't working. <laughs> and, uh, how know, much of that was real? How much of that was real?
2: A, a lot of it. I mean, I, I was questioning whether, one, this career was cut out for me because, you know, you, you you sort of grow up on these stories about these great trial lawyers that never lose a case. And, uh, you know, I'm not one of them. I've, I've lost cases. One more than I lost, but I, I still lose them every now and then. Um, and, and I just had to think, is it me? Is it what can I do? Why isn't this working for me? And uh, maybe I should change gears but uh i i did kind of what that i usually do in these situations was i i gave myself a day or two to you know recover from that and then uh buckled down i looked I said All right, i got another one coming up i'm, I'm not going out like this a- and got very determined and uh worked very hard and and got a very nice result for my client and um you know that that sort of solidify that, yeah, this is what I want to do and I can get better and I'm I'm going to get better. I want to go back to something you just said, Mark. You grow up
3: hearing about trial lawyers or, you know, civil criminal defense lawyers who never lose. Jerry Spence, I once heard, never lost a case. And that never seemed very realistic to me. And I think if people are measuring themselves against that standard, they're going to be discouraged. And you just said something critical that you've had your share of losses. Have you have you learned more about yourself and the practice of law from losing than from winning?
2: Oh yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I'll give you an example of one of the things I did. So in in those, that stretch of cases, uh, three of them involved the same defense lawyer, and he was very good. And he was probably twenty years my senior, and he had he had a certain method of presenting his case, and to the point where his openings were largely the same. You sort of filled in the blanks in everyone. And uh, so what I did was I got the transcript from the last trial I had against him and I got his opening and I went over it and I went over it and went over it. And when we set up for the next case and I got up to do my opening, I gave his opening and I just modified it slightly to be a plaintiff's opening. But I used all of his metaphors and expressions and everything else. And I looked over oh, at him like, hey, what are you going to do now? And uh <laughs> it it was very fun. And that case worked out very
0: well, too. So um, I love it. Mark, this yeah, I mean, this kind of drive creativity, um, you know, that 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 underlies a lot of what you do is, you know, it's a unique skill set. If you um if, if, you know, if, if, if um, God reached down and said, you know, you you can't be a trial lawyer, placed you in an alternative universe where you had to scratch every itch that you have and use all those skills uh, that you've honed, what, what's Mark Tanner doing in that universe? I think it would have to be some
2: entrepreneurial venture. I, I don't think I, I, I like to be in charge. I like to control my own destiny, so to speak, and uh, I I can't see me working for someone doing what I'm told, no matter how much I like the person, um, I I think I'd need to be the the one that sort of kills what he eats, so to speak. Um, You know, I I can remember it sort of drove me into being a lawyer when I was growing up and uh, there was a period of time when my dad was out of work. And he he got laid off by a company that had shuttered up and closed. And we were talking about moving here, or moving there, what we were going to do. And uh, I realized then and there, I want to be self-sufficient. I want to be independent. I don't want anybody to ever be able to control my destiny. And uh, so whatever I did, it would be in some self-employment capacity,
0: presumably. What are your like five go-to habits when you're trying a case um, that that are like your North Star of, of putting it together? Yeah,
2: first, I, I think that the trial for me starts in my mind, you know, more than a year before you walk into the courtroom. Uh, we, we have a unique uh, advantage as a plaintiff's lawyer that one, you've lived with the case and the client for a period of time before you put it in suit. And secondly, you're living with the case and the client right up until you pick the jury. So some of the facts that are going to become relevant in the case are are within your sort of control. If not control, at least you have a long opportunity to figure out how you're going to deal with them. Um, And I'm always thinking about, you know, from the earliest stages of discovery and when my clients call me with questions about just their lives and problem solving. You know, how is this going to play out in the courtroom? You know, the, the most common example is you get calls from clients that will say, geez, you know, I'm sitting around. I, I, I feel like I'd like to try to, you know, go back to work or something for a little bit. Um, but but I guess I shouldn't because it'll hurt my case. And I would say it never hurts your case to try. Uh, I, I would much rather see someone that is a fighter and that's trying to do whatever they can than somebody who's sitting around watching TV. And, and I'm thinking about, you know, not just what's good for the, the person as a whole, but but how it plays out in the courtroom. So one, you, you take advantage of that fact that you are, you know, working with and developing evidence a- as you approach the, the trial. Um, secondly, I think the preparation process starts, uh, you know, long before that two-week period of intense preparation before trial. Um, You know, I'm always when when I get the defense expert reports in and things like that, I I read them. And and for the next however many months up until trial, I'm always shoving stuff in a folder. Might be the middle of the night. I'll have an idea. I'll write down a note. Goes in the folder. I might read an article somewhere. Goes in the folder. And then as I get up to the trial point, I have this sort of box of ammunition. And it just becomes sorting through which are my most effective things to utilize. Um, Having a theme. You know, uh, that that's something that I think emerges even before the depositions, because you utilize that theme in your depositions to, to advance your cause.
0: Uh, I mean, you're but you're doing this in multiple cases all the time that are incredibly complex. Uh, you know, what what is going on inside your brain and central nervous system that that allows you to do it For, first? Let me just leave that there.
2: I think there's a lot of temporary storage space up there. Um, what I mean by that is for, for each case, you know, mo- most of the cases that I try are medical. And I'll, I'll spend far more time in one of the medical libraries in the old days and now online reading journal articles and doing medical research than I will with any sort of legal research or anything like that. And you just amass as much knowledge as you can about a particular issue such that you can sort of call it up with, with some proficiency and while you're on your feet until that case is over. And then, you know, if you ask me the same questions about that case two months later, I'm barely going to remember the the specific complexities of the procedure or disease process. But, uh, you know, I, I can hold it all in there for as long as I have to, but, but you got to let it go too. So Mark,
3: I got a question about that. So that's so. You know, you start your career at 24 years old or when you're trying these jury cases. And, and Bob and I know from being public defenders, trying a case doesn't just come naturally. You don't go to law school, get out of law school knowing how to try cases. So you've had to develop, you know, a set of skills over time. And what skill have you developed that did not come completely naturally to you when you started that now you count as a strength?
2: I think it's the cross-examination. I, I, I think I win far more cases when the defense starts calling witnesses, and the more witnesses they call, it usually goes better for me. Um, I, I was always a bit of a storyteller. You know, I always like to be the, at the cocktail party and Telling a story or telling a tale, and and enjoyed that, and uh, usually it, it was
0: appreciated, or at least in my head, I thought it was. Uh,
2: <laughs> but the, the, fortunately,
0: nobody was rendering a verdict when you were done. Yeah, so.
2: Exactly, they might have rolled their eyes after I turned around, but I didn't know.
0: Uh, uh, Nor did you care. <laughs>
2: yeah, but but the the, the cross examination part is, is something where I, I just learned that this was an opportunity for me to essentially argue my case through what oftentimes is a, a nodding head of the witness. I mean, um, it, it took a while to get there, but, you know, that's, that's my favorite part of the trial now.
3: But if you broke that down and, and made it, you know, in this form, it's hard, overly simplify cross-examination, what do you, if you were talking to a young lawyer, what would you
2: say the essence of it is? Uh, the essence is don't be wedded to a particular direction or outline or, you know, plan ahead of time. Um, I'll probably have, you know, 10, 12 different issues outlined and ready to go. So I know where my exhibits are and everything. And sometimes I use some of them. Sometimes I use all of them. Sometimes I use none of them depending upon what I've heard on direct or what I think the, the witness is giving me. Um, when I start crossing them. And, you know, I have changed and, and done away with my outlines and notes and edits probably more often than I've used them. Um, I think it's, you know, just don't be afraid to react. You know the case, you know the facts better than this witness and be patient, build, set a stage, build some suspense
0: before you deliver the blow. Mark, that I wanna go back to, you said theme, right? Uh, what you just described, obviously, it takes an enormous amount of confidence and 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 uh, you know risk taking nerve, um, but it comes back to theme, right? Cross examination, the way you're describing it, requires you to, to to really be centered on that. Where do you develop themes from, and can you also comment on on your your listening skills when you're crossing, and, and where you've honed that? Right. Uh, starting with the theme, um,
2: first I, I try and reduce the case to a, a fundamental two or three lines. We, we kind of have the one paragraph rule in my house where if you're going to talk about a case or what it's about, you have to be able to describe it, start to finish the, the essential facts, why you should win in a paragraph. And, um, You know, and you reduce it to almost two lines that someone is compelled to agree you must be right. I mean, in a typical surgery case, you know, spinal surgery, uh, you might start and say, you know, spine surgery is a serious and drastic undertaking. And when it's properly performed by a careful doctor, it can have incredibly beneficial results. But when a doctor is less than careful, when he or she uses or fails to use the tools at his or her disposal. When they take shortcuts, the results then can be catastrophic. There's my thing. Boom, it's three sentences. You have to agree with that. Nobody can disagree with it. And that's going to be what's going to carry me through.
3: Uh, that makes total sense to me. I mean, I, and, and, you know, I'm a family law practitioner. I'm always saying to my younger lawyers can you tell the judge in 30 seconds what the case is about? They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, you have to be able to distill it down to some basic truth. And that's, you know, that's in front of a judge, not a jury. So I can, in front of a jury, it's even, that even resounds more.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, you know, no, nobody wants to sit around and wait for you to get to your point. So we, we try and make that as quickly as we can
0: listening mark how, how how much of 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 everything in the courtroom but but we're on this cross examination point um and and how do you how does one become you are you're one of the great listeners that 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 is trying cases how does one get to that place i, I think the you know the the worst parts of a
2: trial for me is when my own witnesses on the stand because i'm thinking all they can do is not deliver what I hope they can do. Because in my mind, it's perfect direct and testimony. And it never works out that way. So, so it's always going to be a problem. And, and similarly, when there's a, a defense witness on the stand, you're just listening for that opening. I mean, I've had, um, I, I can recall a case where the expert, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do with this expert. But he says that, you know, there's nothing in the world's literature that supports something. And, and when he said the phrase world's literature, I'm thinking geez, I didn't think I was going to get him to agree with any of these textbooks, but I have like 10 of them under my desk and all these journal articles that help me. And so, you know, world's literature became the catchphrase that uh, I think he wished never came out of his mouth. Um, similar things, just, there's usually some opportunity that's presented to you and, you know, instead of putting your head down and just writing down everything somebody says by rote, I'm usually sitting back and, uh, waiting till I find my, my openings and I'll write them down, but that's about it.
3: So Mark, w- when you go into a trial, um, as a young lawyer going in, it's, it's been my experience and Bob and I had this conversation, something always happens in a trial that is surprising. How would you advise younger lawyers to prepare themselves for for the, the real uncertainty and, and dynamic nature of a trial somebody who is not experienced to the kind of pivots that you're describing yeah i
2: think you have to understand that in every case you're going to have really high highs and really low lows i mean we we joke with some of the guys that i try cases with about my uh Trial bipolar disorder, which is at at some points, I'm just like, oh, we're killing them. This is great. This is great. And within (laughs) an hour, I can be, oh, no, we can't win. This is going to be awful, whatever. (laughs) And you have to be able to control that. You have to realize that it's a long haul. And uh, I remember I was on trial at one point in a case It took uh, three and a half weeks to reach verdict. And we were, uh, it, culminated with the defense calling 14 physicians in the last week and a half and and i was getting fatigued and one of them i thought was particularly good and i went back to the office that night and i was kind of down in the dumps and uh, a a lawyer friend had called me about something else and i thought i need a break i'll take his call talking to him and i relayed what happened and he's like that's one witness out of like 28 well, what are you worried about? You know, you're killing. Them. Just keep it up. And and he gave me this little pep talk. And I woke up the next morning, and I wasn't feeling as beat up as I was the night before. I got some rest. I was ready to go. And came out swinging. And uh, I forgot all about that guy. And by the end of it, neither the defendants nor I mentioned them in in the closings. Really. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a it's a war, not a battle. And uh, you know, you can give
0: a little ground and still win. So, Mark, what you're describing overall, right, to, to to litigate it in the way and at the level you are, you know, it's exhausting, it's exhilarating, there's so much to it. And, you know, Jeff and I talk a lot about there's this whole ongoing dialogue, which is an incredibly important dialogue about wellness in the law and the statistics about, you know, depression and other related things. But... One of the things Jeff likes to say is on Iron Advocate, we like our wellness with a shot of bourbon. And, you know, the reality is you can't have what you have uh, and experience the things that, that you've gotten to experience in the courtroom without a whole bunch of suffering and, and pain and exhaustion uh, for starters, right? Can Can you, and, and, you know, and Jeff and I talk a lot about this, like, you know, what makes it worth it? Is it worth it? What do you get out of it? Um, Can can you speak a little bit to, you know, how you maintain balance and what you say to a lawyer, a young lawyer, any lawyer who's like, I want to do what he's doing uh, in terms of what the repercussions are and and the load that you carry from
1: it?
2: Um, Just that I I, I would say that as you gain experience and as your confidence grows, the, the pressures don't seem as great. Um, I mean, we're always stressed when we're on trial and everything else, but I, I mean, when I started out, I can remember, you know, I would go home at night, take a shower, change my suit and go back to the office. Sometimes I would not sleep. Um, I'd never do that now. I can remember photocopying documents and, you know, jury instructions and things myself at two 30 in the morning in my office, you know, so I'd be ready for the next day no, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I mean, I I go home by eight o'clock, 830. I I get a good night's sleep. I'm in the office early. I'll get in at 530 or six to to prepare if need be. But I know now that I am so much better with some sleep and some rest and and some preparation in the morning than I am when I'm panicked up all night and feeling defeated. And, And I think things like that come with experience and confidence and uh, you know you, you go through sort of the trial boot camp i think everybody goes through where they kill themselves for a while and, and then you become conditioned that you know what works and you're confident that it's going to work
3: what have you found mark that works you, you describe the kind of uh, trial bipolar disorder that you suffer from i go i go through the same thing sometimes um and then the 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 feeling of of doubt that we have about our cases and the way the world can crash down on us when something goes wrong in court we've all had that experience do you have a way or any methods of dealing with your you know the your inner approach to this sort of like you know that that that, that book the inner game of tennis right we've all heard of that book there's the inner game of trial work how do you relate to that Part of yourself, it's it's either has doubt, is freaking out, is despairing. How do you maintain that balance? I know you say you have confidence now because you've been doing this a while. But how have you found, because young lawyers I find constantly are completely freaked out about going into court, but yet they want to do it.
2: I think it's the same way you approach sporting events and that kind of thing. Um, If you're a coach and your team is down, um, you know, one point at a time one play at a time. Um, I try and wake up every morning and I make a list of what I'm going to do. And this is how I'm going to win the day. And if you win the day more often than you lose the day, you're going to win the trial. So every day for me, it's about how am I going to win the day? What witnesses are coming on? What, how am I going to deal with them? How's this going to help me? And, uh, you know, I, I forgot about what happened yesterday. I can't rewrite that script but I can moving forward do things that are going to soften it or flip the table.
0: I mean, Mark, this this is really tough stuff for lawyers, right? Because part of what you're describing as a a, a a calmness and an ability to, to to balance, going home, getting rest, getting sleep, you know, some of that is inherent in the success you've had, both the internal self confidence. And of course, the financial success that that's allowed you and and you know and your partners to build the firm, um, and provides a different atmosphere mentally and emotionally in which you can try cases, and your clients benefit from that. You know, and the results bear that out. Um, but of course, the truth is the things you're describing actually make you a better trial lawyer, right? Being better rested, you know, having a balance, you know, of some kind when you're on trial, keeping your exercise regime. Um, but part of the reason you can do it is because of where you've gotten yourself to. Can you both reflect back on, on, you know, whether at what point in your career, I guess you were able to do that. And is there some way to impart, you know, onto lawyers who don't have this, you know, we'll call it a safety net or the, you know, the, the structure of the firm that you have underneath you when you try cases, which is why clients come to you and, and lawyers. Cases to you that, quite frankly, are worth more money with you than they would be with somebody else because of your talent, but also because of your, um, you know, global ability to manage. So, you know, there, there's there's lots in there, but can you kind of speak to that? Sure. I mean, there, there's
2: no question that now I feel like I enjoy a tremendous advantage when I can send a text back to a partner in my firm who's tried fifty jury trials and and will jump immediately on some issue and get four or five other lawyers on it if need be and i had paralegals and a kind of support network that i've never enjoyed and man, there's no question that to me that's a tremendous advantage and that helps build the confidence in the calmness um but i also think that you know even when i was sort of by myself uh, and i've gone off and tried a lot of cases just me down in a hotel room somewhere you know it's all you've got. You're out of town. You don't know anybody. And, you know, you're, you're walking to Kinko's with your own exhibits to get them blown up on on foam core. And, uh, you know, that, that's the way I started, but I, I kind of like to be in charge of my own destiny. So, you know, just like if if you're the only one there to do it, then, you you know, you've got no one to blame, but yourself, you have, you have the time to prepare um you always have had and and, you know all you can do is fix what's in front of you get ready for what's in front of you i I don't know if that's helpful or all that responsive but uh it it never bothered me when i was by myself that's for sure
3: no it's helpful it's it's kind of the the zen or the Tao of 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 trial work, right? And win the day, it's an old Chip Kelly. I know it's been around for a long time. Chip Kelly, the football coach, when he was at Oregon, used to have win the day in the locker room. It's a basic philosophy. I know you guys don't like Chip Kelly. Yeah, those of us who Philadelphia,
2: oh, we're, we're not going to follow a Chip Kelly. You're not going to talk about Chip Kelly, but, <laughs>
3: nah. but, but that part of him—he's going to make us saying, edit
0: that. He's going to make us edit that part out now. Jeff Tanner's going to make us edit that out.
2: Yeah. All right. I, I, I should have thought about that one, but not, nothing I say is an endorsement of Chip Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> all right,
3: Chip, wherever you are, man. God bless you. Right. So, I have a, a kind of different question about that. Do you think it's possible to teach? lawyers to be convincing in front of a jury's or i guess the better question is how much do you think is innate talent in relating to a jury and how much
2: is something that can be learned um i think your personality is what you have and you know you're gonna you you can't change your personality you can't change the way you, you relate to other people um what you can learn are the techniques that work for your personality you know so, some people are very funny and gregarious and not, i'm not that funny so i i don't make jokes in the courtroom i i have a very serious demeanor because when i try to make jokes they don't work anyway um so have you, you ever tried and just just fallen flat in front of a jury uh sometimes, and I catch myself, Hmm, I'm the only one smiling. That probably didn't go (laughs) over so well. And and so I don't anymore. Now now my approach is, and what, you know, fits my personality is that this is a a dignified proceeding. It's the most important thing that's ever happened in my client's life. And I'm going to treat it that way every step of the way to the point where even when, you know, people make jokes, I tend not to laugh. Um, you mm-hmm. know, it just fits. Um, but that's not to say that somebody who has those skills shouldn't use them. Um, you know, then there's something to be said for charm. So I think what you have to do is find and accept what is your personality, what makes me the most comfortable in my own shoes, and then pick out those techniques that you see work for other lawyers that exhibit those same personality traits. Um, you know, it's not a one size fits all kind of thing. I, I think, um, there's different strokes, different folks, you know, I mean, you, however you best relate to people, um, you then identify those techniques. At least I, I just steal them from other lawyers that I think, you know, have a similar approach.
0: Mark, how much of I mean, you're, you're describing like a combination of, you know, an embodiment and a, you know, and a character that, that you're comfortable being in the courtroom. Um, And to some, to a large extent, you carry that outside the courtroom. You're always interacting with, you know, potential referring counsel and, you know, folks as you move about in the world. Um, How cognizant are you both in and out of the courtroom of being in that embodiment and kind of role and how much of it? are you not even thinking about anymore and it just happens um,
2: in the courtroom very much so. And to me in the courtroom just means everywhere you go while you're on trial. Um, I, I've, you know, looked over and had just seen, Hey, there's jurors looking at me in the parking lot or, you know, I'm in line to get my lunch or, or, or whatever. I mean, you, you, I think you stay in persona. I'm, I'm consumed by that trial while I'm on trial. And everything I do say and the way I act, I think, is consistent with what I present in the courtroom. Um, You know, beyond that, I think as long as you're utilizing a a technique that fits your personality and demeanor, it's not that hard because you're you're showing people who you are. Mark, what what advice would you give
3: to your 24-year-old, 25, 26-year-old self, looking back now, 30 years later, if you were to advise that young man who thought he could kick ass but got his ass kicked in four trials, what would you, what would you say
2: to that guy? What advice would you give him? Nothing comes easy. And if it's worth it, it's worth fighting for. So, you know... Get your back up, exhibit the the grit that got you through college and law school and life up until this point and uh, buckle down. And, you know, if it's something you want, then you got to fight for it and you'll there, there will come a sea change, I think.
0: So, Mark, what has the law taken from you over these many years that you wish you could have back?
2: Um, probably a lot of time and and clearly some stress. I mean, there, there were, you know, I've been doing this for over 30 years now and there was probably a, an initial 15 year stretch where if I didn't work seven days a week, I'd be surprised, um, you know, really put in a lot of time to the, you know, miss some of the stuff with my kids that, that I, I kind of regret. Um, but then by the same token, it's gotten me to where I am now. And, uh, and I'm enjoying a lot of time with my family and my kids and able to do things that, you know, have been the fruits of that, that labor that I put in earlier. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, I was consumed by my career for at least probably 15 years or so. And, uh, you know, Still, am to some extent. I'm thinking about cases. I'm working on stuff on weekends or, or whatever. I, I structure vacations around trial schedules and uh, all that. But you know, not like I once did.
3: Let me follow up on that. So, so the arc of your career. If right now, you found you were told you only had four months to live, what would you change about your life?
2: think i would grab the family travel with them somewhere do something i would probably continue to work i'd want to transition my my clients that i had to make sure that they're in capable hands i'd probably focus on you know a handful of cases that i really wanted to leave my stamp on and uh otherwise
0: not much hey mark to follow up you know, I, to, I mean, you, know, you follow up on that. So, and I'm sure you talked to Alan about this, who, who, you know, your, your partner, Alan Feldman, who will, will, uh, will, will get in the chair at some point. Uh, how Good. much of this is a, how much of this is about legacy at this point? Um, You know, part of this is what keeps you going. How much is this about legacy? Mark Tanner's legacy, uh, the legacy of the firm.
2: I, I don't think it's about legacy or Mark Tanner's legacy at all. I, I you know, I'm not concerned as to how that plays out i I think if anything it's um i feel a sense of indebtedness to those folks that have helped me along the way and that have gotten me to where i am Um, you know i've had the same assistant for 30 years i've had the same paralegal for 25 years um I, i have lawyers within my firm that that have you know sort of grown up there and uh I want to see them all in a good place and and doing well. And and so that's, I guess, as I think about the future, that that's what I'm thinking about is how, how do these folks keep going and get what they want out of their career uh, because they've given so much to me.
0: You know, Mark, so, so it's like, you know, it is, it is like, listen, you said, if you had four months to live, you'd still be working. And then you followed up by essentially saying you'd be working f- you know, for other people, for the good of other people. Um, and so is the drive different now? You know, the young Mark Tanner, that dude was just, you know, he just didn't want to lose. He was proving himself to himself and all of his childhood buddies and everybody else he ever met uh, or was going to meet. And man, we're talking to a different guy now who's who's still working in his last four months before b- before he dies. And 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 the the it sounds like the motivation is completely different. Um when did that shift occur? And 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 what do you attribute it to? Because right, you wouldn't be in a position to do that for the folks around you if you weren't that guy, right, who was just proving himself to everybody when he was 24. I mean I, I think every trial lawyer, no matter
2: who they are or what they say, has an outsized ego. I I certainly did and do, and I don't like to lose. And and I like to, you know, put on a good show and do a good job. And uh, that's why Hopefully, you know you can edit this like crazy to satisfy me
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. oh, right. no, listen we'll back that, the most listen right. the most fun part man that that's the yeah. it, it, listen you know it's 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 cringeworthy sometimes but right. but
2: right, right. <laughs> uh, but it, it, at the same time it, there comes a point I guess and I don't know when exactly that was where You know, uh, uh, I'm comfortable on my altifieds or whatever you want to call them. I I, I think, you know, it it used to be I felt I had to prove myself. Now I feel like, all right, you know, I still want to win and I'm going to do everything I can to win. But I also have, you know, some accomplishments that that speak about me um, probably better than I can on behalf of myself. And that's just, I guess, a question, a function of experience.
3: Mark, thank you. This has been fun and insightful. Appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Enjoyed it.
1: Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Iron Advocate and that you take what you've learned and integrate it into your own personal practice. As always, we leave you with a minute of mindfulness. Breathe in. Breathe out and we'll see you next time.